I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. to be joined this morning by Amber Frost. She is a writer, activist, former co-host of Chapo Trap House and author of the brand new book, Dirtbag Essays. We'll put it up on the screen. Available wherever books are sold now. Welcome, Amber. It's great to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, so first, let's start with like what made you decide to write the book now? One of the things that you talk about is you felt like this particular arc either in national left politics or in your life had kind of come to an end. And so you felt mm-hmm. like it was an appropriate moment to, to write the book. So what is the phase that you feel like came to an end that enabled you to write this book? Well, honestly, I started writing it before it came to an end, uh, which, you know, obviously required some retooling. And we knew that sort of going into it. Um, I knew that I wanted to start sort of with, uh, where I came from and how I ended up, you know, on the left, quote unquote, um, whatever that means. Uh, and I ended up in Occupy Wall Street. So I'd already seen that end. Um, and I knew through a lot of smaller moments that most of these things do kind of fizzle out. But, you know, when I was uh, trying to get a book deal, uh, Bernie was very much um, still on the table and very promising. And I think all of us on the podcast and and most of the people I knew going into it were like, you know, 
not Bernie's going to win, but we're like, this is the best opportunity we've had in a really long time. So I went into it with like this maybe uh, kind of attitude. And then I was like, Ugh, what's going to happen if what is most likely to happen will, which is that he doesn't win. And then I was like, I'll deal with that later. <laughs> but, <laughs> Figure that out if and when it yeah, comes. Yeah, yeah, which touch, which took a lot longer than I thought because COVID sort of threw me for a loop. And I sort of struggled with kind of trying to find a, a bow to put on the end of it. And then I guess at some point I just thought, well, you don't have like the happiest ending in the world and you should just be honest about that. Um, yeah. It doesn't mean it's the life. end of the world, but sometimes you lose. Yeah, that is life, especially life in uh, left politics. I, I want people mm -hmm. to understand this is not just like a, you know, a retelling of what happened with Bernie either in 2016 or 2020. It's kind of, I mean, you can tell me if you think that this description is right. It's like part memoir, um, part, you know, description of the, the journey of, of yourself and as an activist, but also tracking these major movements from Occupy to Bernie 2016 to Bernie 2020. And, um, you know, a part of COVID that unfolded in recent years. Um, on the Bernie piece, though, you know, what do you think that some of the other retellings of Bernie's loss in 2020, what do you think that they sort of missed or what do you think that they perhaps got wrong? Well, I think that there are a lot of very early postmortems, which I wanted to avoid. I think people rushed in to say exactly what happened immediately, which I mean, you don't. I feel like my first impressions walking away were correct, but I did want to give myself some space. I think there were a lot of sort of, um, well, Bernie didn't win because, you know, uh, whatever, his coalition was too woke or, or whatever. Um, I, I think that comes from a place of um, anger that I fully understand that there was kind of a cannibalistic, you know, whatever left uh, that was a part of Bernie's coalition. But really, I think it was as simple as, um, you know, he faced more opposition from the Democratic Party than he did from the Republicans. Um, we didn't expect him to catch on as much as he did the first time. But when we really went into it for 2016, like in earnest, uh, they, you know, there's it was a it was a kneecap job. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things is because, you know, maybe even if they hadn't have done that, he wouldn't have won. But now mm -hmm. we'll never know. <laughs> right. Yes. But that's also part of the nature of being a like, you know, a lefty trying to compete in the Democratic Party. You have yeah. to just assume that that's going to be part of um, of what you're facing and what you're up against. How do you feel yeah. like the the quote unquote left broadly, however you want to define that in America, has responded to that loss. I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of fracturing. There's been a lot of, um, you know, ugliness on Twitter. There's been, right. I feel like, a, a good amount of nihilism. Um, what's been your reaction to sort of this, like, post-burning moment? I mean, it's difficult because I think most of the people I know have pretty strong heads on their shoulders. I, 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 do have a few friends that just straight up lost it afterwards. They didn't know what to do with themselves. They had all of mm -hmm. their eggs in that one basket, and that makes it difficult. Um, uh, I, you know, it's it's difficult to cope with loss, and I, I think if you don't sort of, you know, cut your teeth on smaller ones, it can be really devastating with something like Bernie. Um, I mean, it, it, as far as like the left, there's not really a left in the country. There are a lot of, you know, leftists or 
socialists or whatever. But if you were to describe the left um, as sort of a, a powerful political movement, uh, which I would say has something having like at the very least a party and a labor movement, mm-hmm. um, it, it's not something we really have. Uh, what we have right now is a, a lot of people that are even further disfu- diffused. Bernie really was kind of a North Star. And um, without that, I think people are really scattered. Uh, they're doing the best they can, obviously. I'm encouraged by a lot of the union work um, yeah. that's going on. Um, I'm very happy that I personally don't have to pay that much attention to electoral politics. Um Living in uh, California, um, you know, I've lived in blue states for the the last many years. Um, but you know, I'm not. I don't have to carry water for a lot of things. And then it's partially upsetting because it means like I have to wait for the odd, like very odd left insurgent candidate that has a shot. Um, yeah, uh, it ain't great. But, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen until it happens. I never really saw Bernie coming in the first place. And I still think he was an amazing opportunity and the the closest we've come in my lifetime. But before that, I was just chugging away at kind of uh, labor stuff. Yeah. Um, You know, nothing is is going to happen until one day it happens. So you have to sort of just leave room for that chaos energy and try and lay the track. Right now, it's the very dull, boring political work of trying to sort of keep people together and focused on smaller projects. Like you, I've been extraordinarily excited by the new energy in the labor movement, which is very different than anything we've seen in our lifetimes, where you're actually like, it's not concessionary contracts. You see these democratic reform movements within large labor unions. You see them, you know, with the American people, you know, firmly behind them. And it's not even partisan. People are overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. on their side. You see the grassroots effort. So I think if more of that had happened pre-Bernie, you would have had more of the infrastructure actually to support a candidate with his um, political agenda. So that does make me help, hopeful for the future. I was wondering also, you know, what you make of all of the uh, grassroots organizing and activism in favor of a ceasefire and a, against Israel's assault on Gaza. Mm-hmm. And if that also, I mean, obviously it's like one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen unfold. But right. the fact that there's been so much organizing and energy around it also has been sort of hopeful and inspiring to see as well. Ooh. Sorry, I'm not going to give you a good one on this. I, I'm not very optimistic. Um, a, as far as what has already happened, it, it seems pretty, um, it's, it's, it's already pretty devastating. Um, I don't think even at this point that, um, I mean, okay, so... This happened for me the first time um, during the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. You realize there was huge popular opposition to this thing, you know? Right. And then you also realized that uh, the nation as a a political entity has zero accountability to the rest of the world, much less popular opinion. So I think, I I mean, it heartens me and it gives me faith in humanity that this many people are are disgusted and, and in many many of them deprogramming themselves from uh, a lot of propaganda. Um, What bothers me is the fact that uh, we don't have a nation that's accountable to broad popular opinion or moral disgust. Um, I think the fact that the U.S. is supporting um, this and has been 
um, not just the occupation, but like, you know, just just putting the boot down. This this obviously and this brazenly uh, with without any world support or popular support is really disturbing. Um, but I do think just to go back to what you were saying about, you know, it, the labor could have laid the groundwork. I actually don't. I, I, I think that Bernie in some ways invigorated the labor movement. I'm not sure that oh, they I would think be that's right. where they were without that. It's kind of one hand washes the other thing. And one of the things I do see being more powerful is at some point when a trade union movement is large enough, they do get to influence things like foreign policy. Unfortunately, we have to have sort of a, you know, a hand in, in the government to... To, to even get to that point already. So it's going to be a slow build, uh, but I don't know. It's it's incredibly devastating to watch. Um, it's really horrifying, and I I, uh, I think we've already foreclosed on a happy ending. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. That ship has sailed. That it's pretty brutal. Yeah. What do you make of um, Bernie and his reaction? I just saw APAC tweeting out, you know, they're amplifying his opposition to a ceasefire. I know you describe yourself as a Bernie loyalist through and uh, yeah, through in the yeah, book. Yeah, I mean, at this point, too, okay, so there's, it's very interesting, again, to go back to labor. Um, a friend of mine in um, a, a very large union, we'll say, uh, has been a part of um, hostile uh, internal debate about whether or not they should make a statement. Interesting. Uh, on Israel. Um, uh, and I'm I, I'm sympathetic to both sides. Uh, one is like, well, we should talk about what is right and, you know, the horrible things that's going on there. Two, uh, they're like, look, we aren't in the best position in the world right now. Um, this is going to be very distracting from building the union. And, you know, uh, Weak unions, grow unions, uh, strong unions influence things outside of the union. Mm. Um, as far as Bernie goes, he's always been to the left of nearly everyone on foreign policy. Um, at the same time, he's a man of a certain age. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't um, put anyone in um, in Congress or the Senate or even local politics um, to uh, the, the standards I hold for, a, let's say, a, a millennial podcaster in terms of foreign policy. <laughs> um, it, it's just it, it's just an old holdover. And at this point, I'm like, it's it's uh, it's not it's not I don't, I don't mean Zionism in particular. I mean, like this idea of, um, you know, Israel as um, as the good guy as kind of a. A it's a very, it's hat, like a very Cold War um, mindset. Like there's the it's, good countries that are on our side. There's the bad countries that are hangover. against us. It's yeah. a hangover. I, I, you know, for my part, it's the holidays. I try and stay on mes message and say, look, I'm against the occupation. And, you know, there, ex there are no excuses, but there are reasons. And if you turn up the heat high enough, water's going to boil. Um. Amber, you have a, ch a chapter in your book that you talk about, like sort of your disgust with the liberal theatrics 
around Trump and how you really rejected, you know, this sort of like performative who can act the most afraid, <laughs> who can act the most outraged, et cetera. Right. But what are you feeling about the fact that it is very possible, if not very likely, that we end up with another uh, four years of Trump? I'm not sure. Um, first of all, I can't really draw a bead on what the possibility for that is. I think it's really interesting. I mean, first of all, we didn't see it coming in the first place. Um, and that was a real wake up call for me because I was like, oh, the death of local newspapers and the the lack of, um, you know, news coverage in, in, in quote unquote flyover country has really missed some major sentiments going on with most <laughs> of the people. Like, wow, that we didn't see that coming at all. Um, and I think what that made me realize is that we don't really have um, a, a way to check the temperature anymore. Um, mm. You know, that it's 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 not just having like news desks locally, but it's about having like local newspapers. And it's about having labor press. Um, so I, I would say the weirdest part of it is that I'm not sure what uh, the actual possibility is. I do think... Um, you know, Biden's infrastructure bill, God knows I hate to give him or, you know, whatever Svengali's running him uh, any credit, but the, the infrastructure bill is very encouraging. Um, it's something that should have happened a million years ago and Bernie would have done it better, blah, 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 blah. I would be interested to see if that has any um, effect on the ground with voters. Mm -hmm. I think what a lot of people voted for in Trump was like the return to manufacturing, um, onshoring, um, American jobs. I mean, jobs are a big deal. People like them. They remember when they had them and they miss them. Uh, good jobs. Um, and I think mm. with the investment in infrastructure, uh, it's actually going to, it is creating more of those jobs. We're, we're now seeing a, sh a, a <coughs> labor shortage in, in the hard hats, um, which mm. are a lot of times excellent jobs that you can get without, you don't have to pay to get into them, it's not like, you know, you have to have a four-year degree. It's skilled labor and you're in a union. You can get a pension and all your benefits. And I think if that shows any yield in time for a broader public, I don't see like the resentment, um, the resentment for the Democratic Party that really fueled a lot of Trump voting um, coming to fruition. If he does get elected, I mean, I have no idea, man. Um, <laughs> the weird thing is that, it, you know, again, we all were sort of like freaked out and it happened. We're like, oh, holy shit, it's this crazy. And then you, oh, the, this is just kind of a consistently like a consistent trajectory of things getting slightly worse. Like this is not a, uh, a rapid decline compared to Obama. It's not great and it's not an improvement, but the strangest thing was, is that there wasn't a huge disaster. It was just a little shittier every day, just like it had been for the past however many years. <laughs> so that's sort of what you anticipate if we get a, a second Trump term. I mean, I could see it for sure. Uh, it is, um, you know, he doesn't want to get in strange wars. Uh, he always wants to see, like, who wins in the end. Um, he tends to, I think, most of, spend most of his, uh, he spent most of his last administration doing, like, I don't know, castle intrigue court politics. He was more obsessed with, he was way more obsessed with, um, you know, his own cabinet and hiring and firing people and doing The Apprentice. Uh, he wasn't that active of a president. 
Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because he was obviously incredibly visible. Like it felt like yeah. he was an active yeah, president, yeah. but then not actually that much. I mean, his biggest accomplishment was yeah. a bunch of tax cuts for rich people, which any Republican president would basically do. I mean, I guess exactly. the thing the thing that um, does make him different is all of the insanity around the election and January 6th. And like, yeah. it was Keystone Cops, but he legitimately wanted to steal the election. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I would say though, but like he didn't and <laughs> I don't know. But the, the interesting thing that I saw later after this during the January 6th stuff is um, they talked to White House security and they said a lot of people that were, there were a lot of people that were there January 6th calling in saying like, hey, um, I left my purse there. I was in there January 6th. Could you, uh, is there a way I could pick it up? <laughs> yeah. And uh, like the head of White House security was like, they literally don't know that what they did was he's like, you know, these people are not fully in orbit. Like, uh, he's like, they, they believe that the president told them to do something. And so that it was allowed that they did it. It's like it's like the kind of American mindset when you get like pulled over and you see those people who are like, actually, I'm a sovereign citizen. And it's like, oh, my God, what no one told you how things work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think after that one, that kind of thing is less likely to happen because it, it wasn't effective. And two, I think Trump doesn't like the amount of trouble he's getting into for, um, yeah, let's say, yeah, uh, uh, waving the... Um, See, I actually sort of feel yeah. the opposite. I feel like once something happens once, it's actually more likely to happen again in the really? future. Wait, yeah, definitely. You've sort of like ripped the Band-Aid off of, oh, well, that thing is now on the table. That thing is now possible. But Like you know. an Overton window thing? So, I mean, yeah, I exactly. Say, it, it did look like they were having fun, but <laughs> a lot of them <laughs> did go to jail. I, I, I could see it also happening in something like not particularly related to Trump. Um, I don't know if the energy would be behind uh, him in particular. Um, I don't know if he seems to have, he doesn't quite have like the shine for the youth that yeah. he did during the time, you know, the the downwardly mobile young men um, who appear to have moved on. But I mean, I could see it around something else because that energy is still there, that that restless resentment. No doubt and that about feeling it. of unfairness and that mental illness, they're all still there, so. No doubt, no doubt. Um, well, Amber, I've been really enjoying the book. I think you're a fantastic writer. I think your, um, you know, your personality, your voice really comes through. And so I encourage people to check out the book. It's excellent. Um, congratulations. And uh, thank you so much for sharing some of your insights today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. University campuses have once again become a lightning rod for free speech. Last week, three university presidents, Harvard's Claudine Gay, Penn's Liz McGill, and MIT's Sally Kornbluth, appeared before Congress to testify about rising anti-Semitism on their campuses. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. Calling for the genocide of Jews does not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context. Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So, the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. All three presidents have since faced calls for resignation. Many high-profile donors have threatened to pull millions in funding from these universities. One of these presidents, Liz McGill of UPenn, has already since resigned. Over the last few days, these developments have entered the cultural zeitgeist, so much so to the point that even the likes of Dave Portnoy have gotten involved, tweeting, one down, two to go. Some university faculty have pushed back on such efforts to censor free speech on campus, one of them being Professor Walter Johnson of Harvard. 
In these past few weeks, I've become wary of my own words, of speaking my mind, of being overheard in a way that I have not been afraid since the days, and then the weeks, and then the months after 9-11 when I was living in New York. And people who I had thought were my friends literally lost their minds, their composure, their sense of proportion, and their basic human decency. And I see that happening again with the ferocity that has astonished me. I am aware of the irony of standing before those of you who have been singled out and targeted, doxxed, harassed, and blacklisted, to warn you that the boundaries of what you can safely say are closing in. So joining us today is Walter Johnson, professor of history and African-American studies at Harvard University. Thank you for being with us today, professor. It's my pleasure. First question, what compelled you to make such a public statement regarding free speech on campus? Um, I think in the first instance, it was the palpable climate of fearfulness among um, many of my colleagues and many of my students. I guess I'd have to say I felt called to speak up. Many were, many of the students were. I felt it was important for somebody on the faculty to speak up and stand with the students. I was also, I think, at that moment, um, aware of things that later came to light about actual censorship happening at Harvard Law School, which was where that event took place in the case of one student who had been involved in a protest and had the university president had issued a statement condemning the phrase from the river to the sea. So I, I think in, in some sense that was an early um, response to a climate of um, intimidation and fear that I, I feel like has only become, um, in, has only intensified in the meantime. You mentioned the phrase from the river to the sea. Now, for a phrase like that, that could mean different things to different groups of people. Some like Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib say it's a, a quote, aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence. Other groups like the ADL deem it to be a call for ethnic cleansing against Israeli Jews. For such phrases like this, how can we consistently apply the First Amendment right to free speech? What you said is exactly right. I mean, you said that it's been read to imply different things. I don't think that, that within that broad spectrum, there's a, there's a lot of room for contestation and debate. So what the letter, what the, what, what the, you know, one of the letters, one of the many letters that I've been involved in over the past couple of weeks said was, well, the university needs to slow down. The university needs to slow down, not to condemn statements, but to encourage investigation and debate. That's what a university should do. And um, I think, again, that was, um, you know, I don't want to get too braggy about it, but that was prescient, right? Because within a week, it comes out that this, you know, come, comes to, into general knowledge. There were specialists who knew this, but this very statement appears, this very phrase appears in, in the Likud founding platform. So clearly it's history and multiple meanings need to be discussed. It can't simply be condemned. Yeah, I want to get your perspective more on what's going on at the universities. The fallout of Harvard's Claudine Gay, Penn's Liz McGill, and MIT's Sally Kornbluth collectively in the mainstream media, they, their testimony has been seen uh, 
as many as a disaster. All three presidents have since faced calls for their resignation, major donors threatening to withhold millions of dollars in donations. Penn's Liz McGill has already since resigned. So what do you think? Does this set the right precedent for the future of university discourse? So I, I think that that, you know, to me, that hearing looked um, McCarthyite. I do not think that a congressional investigation of words said on a college campus in which college presidents are asked whether or not they believe in the principal values of another country um, is a uh, an appropriate um mechanism of, of appropriate usage of state power. I think it's a dangerous usage of state power. Now, I, I will say this, and I'll say this straight up. I think that there has been um, speech made on the Harvard campus that approached the advocacy of genocide because there was an affiliate of the university who stood in Harvard Yard and um, implied that students at Harvard um, supported terrorism and said the words, um, those who uh, justify terrorism are lower than animals. I believe that was an episode of genocidal speech on made on the campus of Harvard University. And as far as I know, there's been no coverage outside of a brief mention in the Harvard Crimson of that. Uh, there's certainly not been a congressional investigation of that. And as far as I know, that individual has not been subjected to uh, university discipline. So again, I, I think that you know part of what's happening is we're living in a um, shadow world where there is an inordinate amount of attention paid to certain types of speech, very little attention of the same sort of attention being applied to other types of speech at the very same moment that there is an actual material real life mass murder removal not by genocide not to mention the history of the last 75 years yeah i want to ask you i want to it's a slight pivot but i want to ask you about the consistency of free speech uh, on campus, because some have likened Harvard, other elite universities, newfound commitment to free speech as somewhat inconsistent. They're insinuating this kind of anti-Semitism is a factor in this. People have brought up some past examples of universities having no problem silencing those who were critical of, say, BLM, DEI, LGBTQ right. ideology. So is there is it fair to say that there is a level of hypocrisies that's that underlies these rationalizations, could there be something more sinister like I, like I just alluded to? Is this criticism fair? I mean, I, th I think that's an important question. I think it's an important question to answer forthrightly. I believe in the first instance that the joining of the attack on DEI, on diversity, equity, and inclusion to the attack on anti-Zionist speech or even speech that is critical of Israel is um, baleful and dangerous, okay? Uh, but I am myself someone who thinks that the regulation of um, speech and civility on college campuses 
has come at this point to serve the universities as an alibi, universities like my university, as an alibi for the sorts of inequality that they represent and perpetuate. And so I think in a way um, that the weaponization of the terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion is related to the way that those terms themselves have become unmoored from a larger understanding of justice. Yeah, last question for you is how do we, because it seems to me free speech is kind of one of those things, to your point, people love free speech if they agree with that speech and they will silence speech that they don't agree with. So moving forward, how do we consistently apply free speech? Yeah, I, I mean, again, I'm not sure there is a, there's a, a consistent application. Um, because I think it's always going to be a field of political contest. And so then the focus for me is on, well, how, how do we imagine ourselves speaking in a way that is insistently honest and also um, generous? And so for me, that does not involve the sort of activity that I think has been, you know, for, for a, quite a while now, we've been living in a world where the words free speech on campuses are associated with the right. And they are generally performed through acts of provocation. Right. Well, well, I, I think that this campus is um, not ideologically diverse. And so I'm going to bring in an extreme ex speaker who's bound to offend. Well, what if we imagine our commitment to to free speech, like to, to the freedom part? What if we imagine it is not something that's defined by our ability that, that we're allowed to to do harm with our words? What if we imagine it as trying to, to, to really speak honestly, to really pursue justice? That's what I've been, you know, thinking. And that, that's, that's not to say that that, that does, you know, uh, plenty of that is going to involve um, saying things that make other people unhappy or uncomfortable. Saying that the state of Israel is an apartheid state, which I think it is. Right. But I don't say that because I want to do harm. I'm not trying to prove some kind of point by that. I'm not trying to prove I'm allowed to say that. I say that because I think it's true. And what if we just hold ourselves to that standard? I think that that would be, um, you know, that, that that's the world that I, I want to live in. And that's the world that I think is is um under threat from any any variety of, of directions. And, you know, to come back to your first question, I guess that's why I felt compelled to, to speak out about any of this in the first place. Well, thank you, Professor. This has been incredibly insightful. Thank you for your time today. If this continues on, I'm sure it will. We hope to have you back in the future. <laughs> Appreciate your time. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 